Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, released through Bureau 42. In this podcast, we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dowler, and joining me this week is a gentleman from the Horizon Labs groups that exist on both Facebook and Twitter. Welcome, Jim Radloff. Hello. Thanks for joining us here, Jim. Thank you for having me. This is episode 69, discussing Avengers issue number four. This is from the original volume of the Avengers, so we're dealing with a cover date of March 1964, released on January 3rd, 1964, or close to it, written and edited by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by George Roussos, lettered by Artie Simek, and... I'm not sure who the colorist was. It might have been Jack Kirby. It might have been somewhere else or someone else. The colorists, sadly, were not being credited in those days. For what it's worth, the inside cover says illustrated by Jack Kirby, so he probably did pencils and colors. Yeah, in those days, it was quite common. Just the the color palettes were limited enough that it was more of a paint by numbers where the the artist would say, you know, assign a number to his own. Mm. And that was quite literally paint by numbers where they had a list of you know, these are the colors that we have available. Mm-hmm. I think in that time they had about a 30 or 40 color palette available, and they bumped up to 70s not long after that. Best place to get more information on that is one of the Neil Adams episodes of Word Balloon, hosted by John Suntress. Neil Adams was a very active artist at the time, went through it in great detail, and it was a huge part of why he was no longer part of the Batman group a little bit after that, and what was going on with him and with DC. But that's entirely off topic. Yeah. All right. So one of the things we like to discuss with every comic is the significance of it, both to ourselves, to the history of the comics. We also like to discuss you know, our own personal histories with it when we first introduced to the comic and so forth. So let's kick it off a little bit with the significance. The Probably the biggest event in this comic is that Captain America joins the Avengers. Yeah. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting how they even kind of plug it as something that's going to be worth keeping and holding on to even in the issue the the first page it says editor's note we sincerely suggest you save this issue we feel you will treasure it in time to come and i know they say that about that sort of thing about a lot of these issues they say issue two is going to be one of the biggest no issue three is going to be one of the biggest fights of all time because the hulk and namor were fighting the avengers but this one, it actually feels very right on. This is an actual milestone event. Yeah, that it it is. I mean, in terms of my first exposure to this, I would have read it in the early 2000s after I got back into collecting comics and Marvel was pulling out Essential volumes on a fairly regular basis. I haven't done that in a long time. I've heard rumors that the Essential line is all but dead. But yeah, it's I first read it in the black and white reprints of just the first... 20 or so issues of the Avengers. And yeah, so it was very much in reprint. I was not even alive when it was first published. Eh. So Jim, when was, what was your first exposure to this? My first exposure, well, obviously since it is always treated as such a milestone issue, I heard about it pretty much right when I got into comics, which was the early 90s. But I didn't actually have access to it until I was actually in graduate school and I found of the Marvel Masterworks collection of the Avengers, which I'm actually reading this from. And that was, this version I've got was first printed in 2009, and I just found it at a local comic shop and 
thought, okay, I have to read this, and I picked it up. It is enjoyable. Like you said, it's reading it in the context of the day. Comics have changed, for sure. Yeah. Right. Every medium goes through maturity period, and comics are, at least in terms of the monthly publication schedule, they are one of the newest ones out there. Not quite as new as TV, but they're newer than movies. And this is one... We can go through a, a quick synopsis of the plot for readers who haven't read it themselves for whatever reason. Uh, it picks up largely where issue three left off. Issue three, there's a form in the ice, and they don't really know who it is. There's nothing else revealed about it, but there is a body in the ice. This one starts off with a recap of the end of that, in which the fight with the Submariner ends... Submariner leaves, finds some local people worshipping the form in the ice. He then breaks it free, dumps it into the water, it drifts into a gulf stream, starts to melt, and the Avengers see the body within. It's Captain America, and he awakens, concerned about Bucky and making sure Bucky survives. So you get a recap of Captain America's recent history, of the death of Bucky Barnes, or at least the presumed death of Bucky Barnes. We'll get into that story later on the list. And when the Avengers return to the mainland... They sort of leave Captain America to do his own thing, and they get turned into statues at a press release when Captain America wasn't present. And Cap is trying to get acclimated to this new world and, you know, the wonderfulness of television and things like that. Meets Rick Jones, who is the spitting image of Bucky. And Rick Jones has come to him for help to figure out what's going on with the Avengers. And they investigate and realize one of the reporters had a device which was not a camera. Track that reporter down. We see Captain America's combat skills for the first time in a while find out that that reporter is actually an alien who's got a head kind of shaped like broccoli, who's been put up to attacking the Avengers by the Submariner. So Cap says, oh, well, you know what, if if you're only doing this because your spacecraft is held hostage, well, I, if you free the Avengers, we could pretty much assure you that they're going to help you get your spaceship free and you can go home. So the alien agrees, he frees the Avengers, and then they head out to find that spacecraft, draw the attention of the Submariner, end up fighting the Submariner, but the spacecraft is repaired. During the combat, which is actually fairly lengthy and fairly intense, involves Captain America as well. When the spaceship leaves, the Submariner assumes it's a much more significant natural undersea earthquake and abandons the area. So basically quits the fight and leaves. The alien is able to safely leave Earth. And the Avengers say, you know what, you've impressed me, and invite Captain America to join the team. And we end with Rick Jones questioning his loyalty as the Hulk's best friend, who's now been asked by Captain America to be his partner. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of just kind of interesting stuff going on in here. You know, you mentioned Rick wondering how they're going to feel when, or how the Hulk's going to feel when he gets back and sees that he's basically been replaced. And this issue is actually sort of the first non-appearance of the Hulk in the series. He's not actually in this issue. As we mentioned, he was fighting them in the last issue. He sort of powered down and snuck away while the Avengers were busy with Namor. But this is the first issue that he didn't actually appear in other than Rick's thought bubbles at the end. I remember when they had Avengers disassembled and people complained about the massive roster change. I remember people online saying the Avengers have never seen a roster change of this scale before. <laughs> 16. Yeah, if you read either the, the Essential or the Masterworks collections that we've mentioned or track down one of those hard-to-come-by DVD-ROMs that Gitcorp was putting out, or read it on Marvel Digital Unlimited. But if you read, say, the first 20 issues of The Avengers, issue one, the team forms. Issue two, the Hulk quits. Issue three, they fight the Hulk. Issue four, Captain America joins. By the time you get to issue 16, 
the five founding members are gone and there's four new Avengers in their spots. Like, I understand why the Avengers were, or why it was the number one selling title of the 60s, at least through Marvel. I don't know how Marvel's top selling titles compared to DC's top selling titles. But the Avengers were the number one selling titles through Marvel, and part of it is because nothing was really safe. They very much had a rotating roster. It's not like the Justice League where, you know, we've got nine members, but only five are available right now to be part of the story. Right. The Avengers were, every Avenger who was on the roster was there. It's just that that roster changed quite frequently. Yeah, and one of the things that I kind of liked about this, you mentioned the Justice League, um, which kind of has me think about how Marvel and DC have always had their big three characters. And DC, it's almost always been Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. But Marvel's actually, between its timely era and the Marvel eras, actually had two big threes. And they kind of, this is significant for both of them, because for for the Avengers, the big three have generally been, been considered to be Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America. And this is the first time all three of them are in the first issue. Yeah. And the other thing about that is uh, this is one of the old big three is bringing one of the new big three into the modern age because their original big three were Captain America, the Human Torch, and Namor. And Namor actually brings Captain America into the modern age. Mm -hmm. After the Human Torch brought him into the modern age, or the new Human Torch. Yep, the new Human Torch brought in Namor. Namor brought in the real Captain America. They actually had the, the back of the collection I have mentions... They were talking about bringing an imposter Captain America into the waters to see how people reacted to having Captain America back in comics. So their their plan was to have the Human Torch battle a criminal Cap imposter in Strange Tales number 114. Mm -hmm. With that issue in mind, the original cover of the Avengers included a reassurance that this was the real Captain America. So all that really changed was when you look at the cover of this issue and it says Captain America lives again. They had a little banner that said the real over Captain America lives again. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the Strange Tales issue did go through as planned. And we found out it was Zante, the acrobat inside the costume. For more details on that, I recommend checking out the Fantastic Cast or just check out the Fantastic Cast anyway, because it's a great podcast. But it, looking at the production cycles, they were billing it as a test run. There wasn't enough time between the release of that Strange Tales and the release of this Avengers for it to have actually been a test run that collected fan feedback, this issue had to be in production by the time the other one hit the stands. Mm. So that's a lot of Stanley's sort of showmanship and marketing, and because you demanded it, because you knew some people were going, yeah, bring Cap back, when really that was his plan, was to bring Captain America back. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I mean, Captain America has always been an important character to Stanley, partly because Stanley's first published work ever was a prose piece for Captain America Comics number 3 from the 1940s. He was a big part of Stan Lee's personal history. And Jack's in 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 the era too. Jack uh, Kirby, who, as we mentioned, is the uh, illustrator on this issue, is one of the co-creators of Captain America along with Joe Simon. And Jack, actually, part of what made his name among the comic community was one of the early issues of Captain America because they had other illustrators available, but the people running the office didn't think that Jack would be able to finish this issue all by himself, one of the early issues of Captain America, I believe it might have been the first, all by himself, and he said, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And they had other authors or other illustrators available, but Joe insisted on doing it himself, and 
they later said, yeah, we have two owls, but there's only one Jack Kirby. Yeah, Kirby was incredibly prolific. And as you can see from the art in this issue, to this day, he still stands, in my mind, as one of the greatest visual storytellers in comics history. Yeah. His panels aren't, I mean, I know some people will be upset by this. I don't find him to be an artist in the sense where, you know, like with Alex Ross, pretty much any panel he does can hang on the wall. That's not necessarily the case with Kirby. But if you're reading a, a comic drawn by Jack Kirby at the stage in his career where he had creative freedom, you can follow the story and understand major plot points and emotional development and often the relationships between the characters without reading a single speech balloon or, or caption. The pictures alone tell the story better than even a lot of modern artists do. And when you're talking about comic book art or sequential art, those are the two keys. The art has to look good, and it has to tell the story. There's some people who fail at that. I mean, J.H. Williams III, his art, you know, such as the New 52 Batwoman launch, that art was phenomenal. But in some ways, he was, on a lot of pages, it felt to me like he was more concerned with making it pretty than telling the story. And sometimes the clarity of the story suffered. You don't get that with Kirby. Right? With Kirby, like I said, you don't need to read a word, and you know what's going on. Yeah. The only, the only issue I really have with his art is there are a couple continuity errors within it. Like on it, uh, page three of the issue, Cap's arm first starts poking out of the ice and you can see that it's he has a green sleeve and a bare hand. And then they they show his whole body in the water and it's all blue. So you can't really see what he's wearing. But when they get him inside, he's in his Captain America uniform with a gloved hand. He wakes up clearly in his uniform and then it goes back to by page seven. They're looking at how he got stuck in the ice and he's in his military uniform again. So he wasn't in his Captain America garb. So Yeah, not completely, but at least some of the, the older issues in the forties, he was wearing his costume under his regular uniform. But then it, in that case, why is Bucky present? Right. Cause Bucky was just the, the group mascot. He was not the field captain. So whether you say, Oh, he was in the uniform and somehow that, you know, when they brought him inside and thought him off, they stripped that off him because you got that uniform sort of in tatters around him on page yep. four. Well, and and as I said, his doesn't have anything on his hand in that first page where you see his hand. But mm -hmm. when he wakes up, he has his gloves on. Yeah, there are issues with that. And some of that is probably largely due to Kirby's schedule. I mean, how many issues was he pumping out in the average month at this time? Yeah. Compared to these days where... You know, it's a good thing if you have an artist who can reliably put out 12 comics a year. Mm -hmm. There were times where comics were behind schedule on a Friday and they had to go to the press Monday. There, were, If you read the, the story of Marvel by Sean Lowe, I forget the exact title right now, there were times when they went to Kirby and said, we don't have an issue, right? They didn't have a script. They didn't have art. And this is a Friday afternoon and they needed it published Monday and Kirby would say, okay. And he'd come in on Monday with... An issue that had everything but final scripting. So story, plot, pencils, and inks with colors over the weekend. And then he'd come back and say, here's the story, you know, Stan, go caption it, which Stan would do. I can't, granted, artists these days are expected to have more detail. If you look at a lot of Kirby art, it was typical of the time. There are several panels with no backgrounds. You just get characters in the background as a uniform blue or a uniform white or a uniform yellow. And on page six, we've got you know, three out of four consecutive panels are just uniform colors, but they're different colors in different panels, right? That was common at the time. These days, artists are expected to have a lot more detail in the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. 
So if you could go back to this level of detail, more artists would be able to do more books a month, I'm, I'm sure. But even in the day, Jack Kirby is known as one of the few artists who could produce pencils faster than those pages could be inked. And that's rare. That's inking is generally, it's generally a faster process than penciling. In case anyone listening isn't totally familiar with, with sort of the way things work and the difference between pencils and inkers, pencilers did the basic outlines, often in blue or other off colors in the, in the 60s. And then the inkers would pick the final lines and go over them with brushes or pens with ink or something else. They, when they were then photocopied for reproduction, the lighter blue pencils didn't survive the photocopying. So the finished product isn't so much the pencil work of Jack Kirby as it is the way George Roussos inked the pages to interpret Jack Kirby's pencils. That's just the way the comic industry often worked. And up until the digital era, it's the way it, it still worked. Now it's probably a mix of that if people are still working on paper or, you know, some other digital techniques. But that is generally the, the way it worked. So the inkers could add definition by and large. Unless you really know the art, if you're someone like me who just, you know, you don't notice the art unless it gets in the way of the storytelling in a lot of cases, then, you know, I often don't notice who is inking the book unless they've done a very poor job and they've distracted it. It's a lot easier to spot an inker who messed up the issue than it is to spot an inker who corrected and fixed an issue. Yeah, it's a lot, lot easier to assign blame than credit. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of that is because the original pencils are masked. I'm sure there's cases where inkers corrected problems that weren't noticed. There are cases where inkers caused problems. I mean, there's a pretty famous issue of Thor where the inker involved forgot to ink Thor's other leg. So Jack Kirby drew Thor with two legs, only one of them made it to the finished product. And the, the way the character is posed and the, the panel composed, it very clearly looks like Thor is missing his leg, just simply because it didn't get inked. One of the things I'd noticed, as I earlier mentioned continuity, there are a couple of just kind of strange timeline issues with this. The the alien when who uh, petrifies the Avengers explains to Captain America that his ray works, that it turns its target to stone for 100 hours, and he's using it on the Avengers because Namor found his ship and offered to free him if he takes out the Avengers. Now, the fight with Namor had just been happening, and the Avengers were coming back from it when they docked their submarines. So it's kind of strange trying to figure out how this alien managed to beat them there, how he managed to beat them back to shore. And there's also kind of a bit of bits of question about how Namor and Captain America clearly don't recognize each other. As I mentioned, Namor and Captain America were two of the big three from the timely era, but... Even beyond that, uh, it doesn't exactly say at what point Captain America was frozen, but for a while, even before the invaders were created, the, the invaders, their World War II team was actually created much after this in the, uh, I believe 1971. They were members of the All Winners Squad, which was Timely Comics' first superhero team, and that team was incidentally put together by Batman co-creator Bill Finger, and since we don't actually know at what point Captain America was frozen in the ice, we don't know if this was an imposter Captain America, which later has been mentioned in the comics, or if this was supposed to be the original Captain America. But either way, it's kind of strange that neither Namor recognizes Captain America, who even he would even have had an imposter on the team, he should have recognized him, nor does Captain America recognize Namor. And Captain America is later said to have an eidetic memory, so he should remember anyone who was 
fairly noteworthy from the 1940s. I can work around Cap not recognizing Namor through a combination of, like you said, we we know that there's some point where he was replaced with an imposter, and that may or may not have been before clear images of the Submariner or Submariner and confirmation of his existence beyond legend came out. So that that could be part of it. And the other part of it is he just spent a few decades frozen in ice. I mean, I don't. It's not uncommon for people to be groggy after an eight-hour sleep. If you've got a twenty-year sleep, I'll give you some grace to have some time to sort it out. In terms of the timeline with the alien, he does. The alien does say that the Submariner found him some days ago. So it's entirely possible that this alien's conversation with the Submariner took place before issues two and three. When or before issue three, when the Hulk and Namor teamed up. So the question then isn't so much how did the alien beat him there, because he could have already made this arrangement with Namor before the fight happened. It becomes how did he know that the Avengers would be coming back to that dock? But then again, how did all the press know? Well, and even beyond that, how did Namor know he would be fighting the Avengers at that time? Because they they didn't actually start their quarrel until that issue until that previous issue that's possible at this time in namor's history he wasn't the sort of noble hero that he is today he had a certain sense of nobility but he was more like dr doom as a noble villain so it may have just been that you know he he has issues with mankind in general he's still planning to take the species down so when he finds out that there's a new superhero team he put them on his hit list so fantastic four was still number one but Namor has always been treated as intelligent enough and powerful enough to recognize there's a team of Avengers and those guys are on it. I'm going to need a plan to deal with them too. So what I'm not sure about is whether Namor knew that there was only a hundred hour limit on those statues. Because if that was his plan to get rid of the Avengers, well, waited out four days and they're perfectly fine. No, you've, he should have been on hand to smash the statues had he known about that time limit. Which makes me wonder, again, this is leading to the benevolence of the alien where he was sort of bullied into attacking the Avengers. Maybe he was hoping that Namor would return his spaceship, he could correct it and leave before the effects of the Ray wore off, and he could leave without really harming anyone. Which is nice. This is exactly the kind of alien that Peter Capaldi's doctor would love to have met. Yeah. Well, any doctor would really probably enjoy this one, but yeah, especially Capaldi. Yeah, he's the one that's voiced his lament about how they're never here peacefully, and you can't just talk. So that's that's the issue in a whole. It is... I, I know some people just haven't been able to muster up a taste for 60s comics in general. But I would say of that, you know, the first volume of The Avengers, whether you're reading it in Masterworks or Essentials, this is one of the better issues from the era. I would say it's better than issue two with a Space Phantom, for example. Yeah. It, it is enjoyable. I, I definitely more enjoy it than, I mean, I've as I said, I've been reading this whole collection, and one that especially stands out to me is subpar as compared to the others, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not a, not a really bad issue, it's just kind of not as good as the others, was issue 7, where Baron Zemo, the Enchantress, and the Executioner brother, and get Thor under a spell so that he fights the other Avengers, and that one's just very strange to me, just because if you look at a lot of the early issues, one, one of the other things is they do have villains, but they mostly fight each other it seems like. Because the Space Phantom takes the appearance of Avengers, and then the Avengers don't know who to fight, so they'll fight the real one at some point when the Space Phantom impersonates someone else. And then issue three, their enemy is one of their founding members, the Hulk. Uh, Captain America, in true Marvel introduction fashion, starts 
meeting the team by fighting with them. He, they, they have to subdue him when he wakes up, and then to demonstrate that he actually is Captain America, because none of them believe he's the real Captain America, he fights them and actually overcomes Ant-Man and dodges Thor's hammer and puts in a good show, except he's surprised by Wasp because she comes back to full human size and he won't hit her. She's just too surprised. But other than that, he fights everybody. And that's kind of a theme of some of these early issues is they don't necessarily fight the evils that nobody else can face. They fight each other. That's true. Although this is one of those cases though, where it's not, you know, some sort of misunderstanding or some misinterpretation or just egos getting in the way. He was frozen in the middle of a combat situation, desperate to save his partner. And he wakes up still thinking he's in that situation. So I, I, I get some of it. And then, you know, that's when they start to subdue him and he feels like he's being attacked. I mean, he's a guy in wartime surrounded by people he's not familiar with. So it is, like you said, it is that, that classic team up where they kind of knock each other around a bit. In this case, it does showcase Captain America's abilities to readers who weren't reading 20 years earlier, which would have been a lot of people, actually. I, part of me wonders if the decision to bring back Captain America was due in part to the, the fallout from the seduction of the innocent. Right? I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, the, the infamous novel of, or report. Yeah, following Frederick Wortham's publication of The Seduction of the Innocent, the comics industry changed to sanitize it and make sure it was safe for seven and eight-year-olds. And that happened in the 50s. By the time this issue was out, the mentality was that, well, now the only people reading comics are the seven and eight-year-olds. And Stanley was always trying to write for a more mature audience and had some success with that. So I wonder if bringing Captain America back was a calculated to choice to try and reach back to and recapture his older fans who hadn't read comics for a while. Well, at the same time, the fighting demonstrates his skills for the younger audiences who'd never seen him before. That could be, and it's it's also, in my opinion, it's probably partially that a lot of the heroes in the 1960s were characters that, you know, young children and even a bit older children or other readers couldn't necessarily aspire to be, if you will. The, the Fantastic Four clearly all had superhuman powers that were beyond what we mere mortals could have. Spider-Man could climb walls. Other than the X-Men's Beast, no real heroes of the time had, you know, powers that we could relate to. They were all, like, clearly something we could never be. But Captain America actually is in peak physical condition, like, just beyond that of an Olympic athlete. But he's actually in shape that if we worked hard enough, we could conceivably be in. He doesn't have magic weapons or great technology that we never have access to. Yeah, he is, you know, what they often refer to on the trading cards and such as peak human rather than superhuman, right? He is the best a normal person can be, but physically he's still fundamentally normal. And ironically, he would later have his own problems with the Comic Code Authority because they look back at how he got his powers, and it was the super soldier serum and Vita Rays, but if you take away the Vita Rays, he essentially got his powers from steroids, so they kind of watered down his powers and made him have to work out all the time to maintain his peak physical performance. Yeah, which I can see it, it would make sense because any muscle will atrophy, right, if it's not used. And I could see, I mean, he's got the super soldier serum and for some reason his body doesn't metabolize it and it's always there, presumably catalyzing reactions rather than driving it. But I have no problems with Cap having to keep in shape or even just choosing to do that because he's the kind of guy who would 
want to train and stay in peak physical condition just because he knows the situation he tends to get in and he wants to make sure he can handle whatever comes up and be prepared as much as possible for that which you can't get, you know, if you can't predict it, then it's hard to prepare for it. So he's like, well, let's just prepare for everything. Stay physically fit and stay mentally fit. And plus he's, I I know I see a lot of comparisons of him and Cyclops from the X-Men, especially since, you know, Cyclops eye beams will ricochet off targets and Captain America's shield will. And they're, they're both great tacticians as well. And oddly enough, I believe they're with the, Freeze, I think they're actually about the same age. I think Captain America might be about seven years older physically, but Captain America is only supposed to be about 24 in the comics physically at this point, because if he was frozen during World War II and he signed up when he was 18, he would have been frozen when he was about 20, 23, 24. Wouldn't it be 22 at the most? Because it's the United States got involved in World War II in 1941, so he would have enlisted after that point in late 41. But Captain America actually got involved before that. Okay. Captain America was actually it was actually kind of a point of controversy that the first issue of Captain America with him punching Hitler in the face came out, I believe, a week before Pearl Harbor. Okay. So he he actually would have enlisted in 1940 and gained his powers and been frozen at most five six years later actually if he didn't know about the all winter squad it would have been at most five years later so he would have been at most about 23 yeah so very much he is a man in his early 20s it's he's been through war and he understands that but yeah he would have been well he's certainly younger than iron man way younger than thor (laughs) well actually when you when you think about it he's actually probably the youngest avenger at this point with the possible exception of the wasp yeah, the Wasp would be younger, because she was, when she was first introduced in the Tales to Astonish issues with Hank Pym, she was described as a teenager. So she would have been 19 at most yep. when they got involved. And to just so people know, it's a little less creepy than you're expecting. The last time they referred to her as a teenager was when she was making advances at Hank Pym, and he was turning her down because he was still hung up on his ex-wife. So Janet is actually his second wife. And she starts out as his secretary and not much more. Yeah, and then they get involved and they really push the Comics Code Authority. There's just a scene where Hank decides... There's one issue when Hank decides to rent her an apartment in his building. So basically invites her to live in the same building as him. And then a few issues later, they give a complete blueprint of the entire building. One bedroom, one bed. And this was after they were romantically involved, but way before they were married. So it's just nice how you take those two issues distance far enough apart and the Comics Code Authority totally missed it because they forgot she was living there. But I'm betting the the issue creators remembered full well and managed to slip that one under the radar. So, of course, you could make the case we're talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp here. One bed might as well be like a city for them. Yeah. So I think we've already at least strongly alluded to the impact this had on the industry. The introduction of Captain America in the minds of many fans and in the, you know, the stated words of Stan Lee is where the Avengers feel like they gel and actually become the Avengers that we know today. Right. This was the last piece of the trio and the piece of the dynamic that really started shaping the team into the team it is now. So, I mean, without the idea of re- reintroducing Captain America, we may not have seen the success from the Avengers franchise, which means when Avia Rad was out there shopping Marvel properties, he may have been less adamant. Part of the reason that Marvel's been able to do things with the Avengers is that Avia Rad, when he bought Marvel Comics coming out of its bankruptcy and really started pushing 
to bring Marvel to Hollywood and get these characters on the silver screen, one thing that he was absolutely adamant about was that whichever studio bought the rights to any of Iron Man, Thor, or Captain America had to buy all three. They could not be purchased individually. So the big three had to be together to make an Avengers film an option. That's one thing that he just absolutely positively would not budge on. And that is largely the reason that the rights to those characters had not been sold when Marvel started to produce their own movies in-house. And Avia Rad been looser on that. There were studios who were looking at buying all three of those properties. It's just no one wanted all three of those properties. And it was actually Captain America was the one that most people were, were pitching for. But a lot of studios did not believe that Iron Man or Thor movies would work. So they just saw it as like buying a couple of riders onto it that were going to just make them lose money in the long run. And now we have the Marvel Studios that we have today. Well, and if I remember correctly, Captain America was actually the first fully released or first character to get a full release of a Marvel film because there was the 1990 film, I believe. Yeah, which it did end up going direct to video. So it wasn't a theatrical release. And I believe The Punisher with Dolph Lundgren came out in 85. That's right. That's right. That was that did predate that. And yeah, so the, the first flat-out Marvel property that made it to the big screen was Howard the Duck in 1986. Yeah. But he was not a superhero. So there there had been topics like this. But yeah, Captain America was... He was the second Marvel character to get a release outside of the TV format. Right? Howard the Duck came first. But let's face it, you have to be a pretty knowledgeable comic book geek to recognize that Howard the Duck was a Marvel Comics character back when that came out in 1986. I know a lot of people who didn't even realize he was Marvel until they sat through the credits and watched the closing scene of Guardians of the Galaxy. Spoilers, sorry. One of the the things that we like to do when we're going through these is try to find out, are there any meanings or messages embedded in these stories that we can look at? Because a lot of times... The reason stories are great is because they give you more than just the surface layer. So stealing this bit from the Mission Log podcast, which is also a great one to listen to, we look for deeper meanings in these stories. So in the case of Avengers number four, are there any deeper meanings here? Is there anything that we, you know, that, any social messages that we feel they were trying to convey? One thing I kind of see in here is the 60s were kind of an uncertain time for a lot of people. Um, and even within the comic industry, People were step walking on eggshells because, as we mentioned earlier, the seduction of the innocent and there was increased scrutiny on the medium. And I think that, as we said, might have been part of the reason they brought back Captain America, not just as a character who was safe, but as sort of a an early form of nostalgia where people were looking back to what, even though it was a terrible time, was a bit more safe in hindsight looks looks safe now that we look back on it because world war ii of course there was rationing there was was uncertainty certainty even up until america joined world war ii there was not only uncertainty whether or not we would but on which side we would because there were fairly strong axis supporters in the united states and captain america coming back is just sort of a reminder that things haven't always been perfect or haven't always been terrible, but we can get through what seem like some of the worst times. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I do really like about this is the way Cap deals with the alien when he's discovered as an alien. Right? We've got one of the greatest fighters in history who discovers an alien, and his first reaction is, okay, tell me what's going on. What did you do? 
And the conflict with the alien, it's a rare instance, especially in sci-fi coming in the 50s and 60s, where the resolution is 100% peaceful. He said, oh, you were bullied into this. We can solve the problem. I'll tell you what. You give me a hand, we'll solve that problem for you. So he releases the Avengers early. They, you know, help him locate his ship. They bring it up. He can conduct the repairs. It's all good. And that the conflict is back with the Submariner. And historically, the conflicts that mankind has had with the Submariner have all boiled down to, you know, the fact that we will often treat the oceans as our garbage dump slash sewage output, right? That That's a big part of the Submariner's problem, is that his homeland is being treated like crap by the surface people. And and he feels almost impotent about it uh, right at the beginning. He He realizes he wants to take it out, one, on the people who have actually wronged his people, and two, those who actually can, you know, fight back. And he's even states, this isn't a thought, but I don't know if they did as many thought bubbles back here, but this is actually a speech bubble. Has the mighty Namor been reduced to fighting helpless, fearful primitives? Is this all my strength is good for, to lash out at uncomprehending Eskimos? And he's he's not stopping his rampage, but he's acknowledging that it's pointless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's recognized that he's just generally angry. So I I think that that is a lot of what we've got here. We've got some pretty introspective comments. We've even got Rick Jones going like, "Where where where do my loyalties belong?" We've we've got some genuine questions being asked. None of them are being explored in any great depth, but they are being laid out on the table for people who want to pick up and run with them. It's you know it's more the the springboard to start the conversation rather than the conversation itself. And and one of the things just as I'm paging through this again is something you had mentioned earlier about how. Rick Jones kind of has his internal conflict over who's he going to side with eventually between the Avengers and the Hulk because he got into this whole thing because of the Hulk, because he was the Hulk's friend. He was one of the Hulk's only friends, and he's in fact partially responsible for the Hulk being created, and he doesn't know when it comes down to it if he's going to be loyal to one side or the other, and he doesn't, he doesn't seem to blame either side for the division between them i don't i don't know if he just doesn't know the circumstances under which the hulk left or what but basically it's just kind of interesting that he doesn't seem to think it's anybody's fault that they broke apart no he doesn't and that could in large part be due due to his own experiences with the hulk i mean rick probably knows the hulk better than anyone else at this point in history as far as marvel's concerned and what he knows about the hulk with any certainty is that you know in his experience, the Hulk will fight back, but he usually doesn't pick the fight. But he also has a short temper, so he's kind of understanding. I think he gets that, you know, maybe they're in conflict just because one of the Avengers rubbed the Hulk the wrong way, and it can still be resolved, and the Hulk can rejoin them and have more friends. Right. So I think that covers pretty much everything except why we feel that this issue was in the top 75 at all, and why in particular it landed at episode, or at spot number 69 and i can just hear andrew leyland snickering if he's listening to this every time we say the episode number well just as i'm looking at it i think this is actually one of the higher ranking of the silver or early silver age stories i mean if you look especially more toward well no that's not true the hulk number one and fantastic four number one are number 15 and 14 respectively but this this wasn't actually an introduction to anybody except for the alien who I don't recall whether or not we ever see his race again. 
I I've honestly missed much of the 60s, 70s, and 80s in comics outside of the X-Men, but I don't recall hearing from that race again, and everybody else had already been introduced. It was sort of, it was important because it was, as we said, introducing a new dynamic to the Avengers and changing how that series would run, but it didn't actually create any new elements for, or any new characters for comics. Yeah, not a lot. Um, we did see this alien race again, and the fact we see this alien again. He's a member of the Dabari race, and according to marvel.wikia.com, he's got ten appearances in Marvel Comics. So we've got this issue, Captain America Volume 1, number 400, Wolverine Volume 2, 136 and 137, Sensational She-Hulk 45, uh, there's the Phoenix Force Handbook, number 1, Volume 1, there's Captain America, Man Out of Time, Volume 1, Issue 2. Captain America, The Secret Story, Volume 1, Number 1. Saga of the Submariner, Volume 1, Number 8. So I suspect those last three issues are more recaps, as would the, the Phoenix Force handbook be. I'm not sure exactly how he's involved in the Phoenix Force. And he's in uh, Uncanny X-Men... character? Yeah, Uncanny X-Men, Volume 1, Number 387, maybe part of that. Part of the Maximum Security crossover. Hmm. So this alien named Vuk has appeared in a few. And we've got actually four members of the race that have been listed and known. There's Bzul, Gvin, Tazwata, and Vuk. And Taz, I don't know, T-A-S apostrophe W-Z-T-A is the only other member from the Shire Galaxy who's got it. And that's a character who was killed, or was a member of the Nova Corps who was killed by Kra in the first issue of the second volume of Nova. The 17-issue run that was concurrent with the New Warriors. So... The Dabari race is, you know, nowhere close to the scale of the Kree, the Skrulls, the Shi'ar, even the Badoon. But, yeah, that's one of the things about these early issues. You get enough writers like Dan Slott out there, and you're going to come back to every single one of them. Yep. So, yeah, I I would agree that I think it, it made the list because of the significant impact that this ultimately had on the Avengers and their place in the Marvel Universe. I think it was fairly low on the list because aside from that, there's not a huge amount of lasting impact. I mean, I, like I said, Vuk's got 10 listed appearances outside of this, four or five of which appear to be genuinely new stories. I don't know if we'd have seen that many if his earlier appearance didn't happen to be the one that reintroduced Captain America as a member of the Avengers. There's a lot of alien races that only appear once or twice. But who knows, he may get a name drop in another Guardians of the Galaxy like the Ostafarians did last time. Because that's also a genuine Marvel alien race. So did you have any closing thoughts on this one, Jim? Uh, no, I think we've pretty much covered everything that I really wanted to mention. All right. So in that case, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Right. And for those listening along at home, episode 68 will deal with Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21 which was reprinted in Spider-Man The Wedding trade paperback, The Marvel Weddings trade paperback, and it can also be found on Marvel Digital Unlimited and on the Comixology store, which can be read in their app, but purchases can no longer be made directly in the app if you're on iOS, although they can be made through Android if you've got that tied to PayPal. Okay, so thank you for listening, and please join us again next week. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon. 
the Comic Book Conversation Show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage. 